Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Let's get into things, finally. Long announcements and everything, but let's, uh, let's get into it. So two weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago, I said, uh, we're finishing up a series on Acts, the first half of Acts, and we're moving along, right? Uh, I guess I lied, so I'm sorry for that. Uh, I, I, I say that because um, after, two weeks ago, after the message, I was kind of preparing the content that goes out through our Sunday Leftovers podcast. The Sunday Leftovers podcast is just kind of what it sounds. It's all the leftover content that didn't get used uh, in the sermon, instead of just getting deleted and going away, kind of comes and lives in the form of this, this podcast that comes out uh, most every week. And um, as I'm preparing for that, I'm looking at all these leftovers, and I'm like, my goodness, there's a sermon here if you just scrunch it all together. And so... That's what it is. Uh, today, we are, I think, actually finishing our series on the first half of the letter of Acts. Uh, and we are finishing with the outcome of the council at Jerusalem. We led right up to the point where the council made a decision, but there's still more to come. And based upon the questions that some of you had following that message, and again, just some of the kind of leftovers there, I realized, let's, let's kind of keep going with it. Now, let's, let's, also, um, let's also get up to speed, because after all, it was two weeks ago. Last week was a special Sunday for us with Sunday of service, and uh, what, a, what a fantastic day, man alive, uh, to be able to proclaim the gospel, not just with our words, and not just with our voices as we sing, but with our actions as we assembled filters, with 20 leaders uh, was such a privilege to be a part of. Uh, we, started that, uh, we started that morning, I, I shared just a short devotion from uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, um, miraculously feeding the 5,000, not realizing that two hours from that time, Rosewood Church would assemble enough water filters to actually provide clean water to people who do not have access to clean water around the world, that we would actually provide enough for 5,000 people. Uh, it was fantastic. And in fact, you all assembled so many that you made 20 leaders people go into a panic and run back to their facility and get more parts for us to, to put together. So we just destroyed it and it was good. It was such a good day. Uh, so um, anyway, that was last week. So let's just kind of briefly recap what we looked at two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the council at Jerusalem from Acts 15. Uh, and, uh, and the council is the outcome of division that is boiling over at that time in the first century between Gentiles as non-Christians or non-Jews uh, who were Christians and 
Jewish Christians. And the issue that was happening was that Paul was going around as a missionary telling all of these Gentiles that they could believe in Jesus and embrace Jesus and not requiring them to embrace the law before they did. Well, the Jewish Christians had a real issue with this. And so they start sending their own missionaries to follow Paul and like correct his error, so to speak. And, um, and this eventually leads to this serious debate and dispute between Paul and these missionaries, which leads to the calling of the council at Jerusalem, where all of the leaders of the Christian church come together. Now, that, of course, the church isn't as big as it is now, but it is still multinational. So, so all of these people come from out of town and, and come into Jerusalem. And while they're there, they really have only one question that they're looking to answer when they're together. Should Gentiles who embrace Jesus be required to first embrace the law? of Moses. Well, the Jewish Christians are saying, yes, they should, you know, just like what we did. The, the kind of Jesus-only camp was saying, no, that's not required. It is salvation by grace, not by works. And so then we finish the story with verse 19, where James kind of pounds his gavel, and what he says to everyone is, we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, from there, we, with the message, we brought it close to home and we looked at what the implications really are of, of salvation by grace, that it's more than just a, a piffy saying that most Christians kind of know and, and recite, but it has significant implications upon our daily living. And, and in some ways, it's kind of a scandalous truth when you really get into what grace, uh, what grace means and, and what it means for us as a community. And, and ultimately, the, kind of what we landed on is that holiness is the result of salvation, not the way to salvation. So let's pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago in the story. This is again, beginning at Acts 15, 19. James says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sunday, or on every Sabbath, rather. Now, I hope this kind of strikes you as a little bit odd in a way, because the outcome of the Council of Jerusalem is saying these Gentile Christians, in fact, no one is bound by the law, and then they bind them to the law. You don't, you know, hey, you, you can embrace Jesus without embracing these, uh, without embracing Moses' law, but here are four laws that we would like you to embrace. It's kind of like your chains are, are gone. Enjoy your four seconds of freedom because they're coming back on, right? Like what's going on here? It almost in a way feels a little bit contradictory, but it's not. What's happening here, I think, is, is this profound example of wisdom among the people at the Council of Jerusalem, which carries with it truths that are extremely relevant to us today. I truly believe that this is a word of the Lord to the broken, divided, black and white, politicized world that we all occupy. The wisdom of this decision is phenomenal, and we would be extremely wise to follow in their footsteps and to learn from what they're doing. Now, here's the actual letter, which Paul includes in his letter that we know today as Acts. Now, I'm going to read it, and then afterwards, we're going to answer a question, why these four? 
So here's how it begins in Acts 15, 23. It says, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that someone out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So why these four? Why these four things out of, out of all the options, right? Like, to, to me, it's like if I were there and I had to set four, it, it wouldn't be these four. I mean, you would think at least they might like turn to the Ten Commandments or something and say, well, we lean into these a little more. But these four almost feel like they feel so minor. They feel almost petty. Why these four? Well, I can't answer that question because it seems like no one can, frankly. If you, if you look this up, if you do your own research, you will find many, many, many differing opinions about why these specific four and not a fifth was included in this letter to go back to these, uh, to these churches. So why these four? We don't 100% know because there's no consensus but for our purposes, that's actually okay. We don't need to answer that question. Broadly speaking, though, it does count, come down, I believe, to something, something social, something spiritual that we still experience as religious communities and, and even as secular communities today. It comes down to something very known to us. It's the struggle between personal freedom and social responsibility. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that, and then I'll tell you how this is actually a religious word, but we just maybe don't use it as often. This <laughs> personal freedom versus social responsibility. Now, for me, just looking at this slide makes me like want to have a panic attack because this is so much. When you get down to it, this is so much of the struggle that we have gone through, we as in Rosewood, and we as in our families, and our communities, and our countries, and churches, this gets down to a lot of the heartache that has been experienced in the last especially two and a half years. In fact, let's use, if we could just a moment, use the pandemic as just a case study to kind of understand what these are, especially if you're not kind of familiar with these ideas. So, if a person were to hold a high degree of personal freedom as a value, but no consideration for social responsibility, okay, let's just take that extreme. That extreme, that's where you've got people who you would hear say, uh, you know, let me do what I want to do. Let me protect myself the way I want to protect myself. And you do what you want to do. You can do anything you want so long as I can do anything I want. Do not tell us, do not tell me what I can or cannot do. That's all per personal freedom, 
no real social responsibility. Now, now flip that. Someone who, who believes the opposite, then you've got the voices who are saying, no matter the personal sacrifice, no matter how painful, no matter how isolating, no matter what, those sacrifices are worth it for the good of the community. So no personal freedom, high social responsibility. Now, most people don't represent those two extremes. We're all somewhere here. Most people heard the rhetoric of both sides and had some sort of, you know, would nod their head to some degree of, of, of each viewpoint. And then we'd all kind of draw our lines somewhere in the middle. It was a mixture of personal freedom and social responsibility. Well, that's very much, without the illness part of it, that is exactly what this early church is going through in this debate that leads up to and continues out of uh, the council at Jerusalem, because the gospel is gaining traction among Gentiles uh, and among Jews. And in some communities, both Jews and Gentiles, who both have come to embrace Jesus, are, are coexisting in the same religious or, or same church community. And in some cases, their experience is causing them not to mix, to, not to mix well. Their, their unique backgrounds and the way that they kind of express their faith looks a lot different just based upon how they relate to the Jewish law. Some embraced the Jewish law before they were Christians and, and brought it into their Jewish faith. faith. Others came to embrace Christ with no knowledge of the Jewish law. So you've got two very different starting points uh, for people sharing the same church home. But again, the wisdom of the council at Jerusalem should not be overlooked as far as how they handle the application of their decision. The council chooses four laws. And they asked the Gentiles to adhere to them, but not because they have to. They asked them, they request them as an act of grace towards their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters in Christ to abstain from these four things. And conversely, even though it's not said, it's certainly implied that there are many other laws that Jewish Christians may very well want the Gentile Christians to follow, where the Gentile Christians are not going to be bound to those. So we see still this expression of personal freedom, but also an element of social responsibility, realizing that they together are not going to be able to exist if they don't have some sort of place where they meet in the middle. In fact, it's, it's worth pointing out um, that the list of four has a lot, a lot of similarities with what you would read from Leviticus 17 and 18. Leviticus 17 and 18 are two chapters where, where God speaks through Moses to communicate what the expectation are of foreigners who uh, become a part of, of Israel. Um, now, in that time, Israel was, it was different from other nations around them. If you, you could come and live and be uh, in Israel, but not embrace Yahweh. You, you didn't have to embrace the religion of the people that you were staying in. That was very different from, from other uh, places at that time. However, uh, even if you didn't have to embrace the Jewish God, you still had to follow certain rules so as to not offend the sensibilities of the Jews. 
And those rules were very similar to the rules that are laid out in Acts. But there, again, I don't know if that's like the template that they used. The Bible just doesn't say. But there's one major difference between the Levitical law and the law that we, or this, this ruling that comes from Acts. Uh, Leviticus 17.10 says that if someone were to break the law, a foreigner, they will be cut off from the people. But in Acts, there's no penalty. It is requested based upon goodwill. There is almost this hope or expectation that there is some degree of common decency that exists within the community of believers in these places where that common decency, that grace, that love for one another would be able to help them to live together without the fear of punishment that comes from Leviticus. So to, que- to answer the question of why these laws would be requested of the Gentile Christians, I don't know why these four are, but I do know it has something to do with keeping the peace, not keeping the law. This decision is all about keeping the peace, not keeping the law. Are Gentiles free from the law as a requirement for salvation? Yes. But out of consideration for others, without a threat of penalty, they are asked to adhere to a few points of the law for the good of the group. And so that's why what we're talking about, yeah, I mean, I started it with personal freedom versus social responsibility and all that, but but what we're talking about here is unity. We're talking about the value of unity in the church embedded in the core of the first major decision of the Christian church, that it is a decision that is made with a bend towards unity to maintain unity within the church, especially a church that is quite a bit different when you get down to the human level. But I do not think that we should underestimate how messy this kind of blending is or was back then. The early church was running into some of the same challenges uh, as like when I read it, I think of like a, um, like a, a blended family, right? Where you got husband and, and wife coming together who already have their own families. And, and when that happens, there can be some messiness and sometimes it just works and other times it It just doesn't. And that's kind of what's happening here. You've got the the family of Jewish Christians and you've got the family of Gentile Christians who really are all one family, the family of God, but the kids are fighting a bit. So how are we going to sort through this? And I think it's worth noting because sometimes we, we forget this, especially in church environments. Sometimes I think we're led to believe that if it is right, it should be easy, right? If it's the right thing to do, it should be easy. Everyone should go along with it, right? Right. Wrong. This, w- this would not have been easy in the early church. Gentile believers would have abandoned their pagan religion. Yes. But would they have abandoned their behavior that they learned from that pagan religion? Not necessarily. Same with Jewish Christians. Have they, uh, do they embrace Jesus as the Messiah? Yes. But are they still carrying with them their Jewish behavior? 